I'm Elena Landsberg-Lewis, your host of Grandmothers on the Move, the podcast that kicks old stereotypes to the curb. Come meet these creative, outrageous, authentic, adventurous, irreverent, and powerful disruptors and influencers. Grandmothers, from the living room to the courtroom, making powerful contributions in every walk of life. We know them most intimately as loving caregivers, the older women in our lives with a thousand stories about their grandchildren and pictures in their purses. In this podcast, you'll come to know even more about our grandmothers. They are galvanized, determined, and are guaranteed to get you thinking. What drives them? What are they up to? What is the potential of grandmother power and how is it changing the world? Grandmothers are on the move. You don't want to be left behind. Hi, it's Ilana. Welcome back to Grandmothers on the Move. Today I'm speaking to Leslie Ann Foster, who was born and raised in East London in the Eastern Cape Province of South Africa. In 1996, Leslie established the Masimanyani Women's Support Centre, the first organization in the Eastern Cape devoted exclusively to combating violence against women and girls. Through the centre, Leslie has spent years developing and implementing services at the grassroots level and leading initiatives to heighten public understanding of the problem of gender-based violence and has had a considerable impact working on women's human rights at the international level. In addition to the presidency of the Amanatari Sexual Rights Network that works across 26 African countries and being on the board of the International Women's Rights Action Watch Asia Pacific, which works in 122 countries, Leslie has worked on issues of gender equality and social justice with a specific focus on violence against women, HIV and AIDS, and sexual and reproductive health and rights. Leslie, and you and I met, it must be almost 20 years ago now. It was around about 1997, 98, I think. It's a long time. It's a long time ago. And, <laughs> uh, and we were meeting after meeting and it was the exciting moment of all these women internationally coming together to name and talk about women's human rights. And I was very fortunate because I had so many women to learn from. But I remember you were particularly powerful in my own sort of personal landscape because you were really living in the community and working with women. I wondered if we could start with the work that you're doing now and how that has evolved over the last few years. Yes. Well, you know, I continue to consider my work to be locally rooted. In fact, a byline that we have is that we are locally rooted and globally connected. I just have an affinity for keeping the connection with women on the ground. I must say, I've actually struggled over the last few years with bridging that gap between the local and the global. Now, one of the things that happened very early on for me was the Center for Women's Global Leadership Institute that I went to was a particularly important moment in my growth. Because when I came to that institute, I was just a local startup organizer. That kind of local rootedness, I've actually kept that in Masimanyani because I believe it's like you were talking earlier on about people informing their own strategies and their own development processes. For me, that still informs the work that I do. Subsequent to that, I attended the International Strategic Planning for the Women's Movement that took place in Zimbabwe. So at that meeting, met Shanti Dairam. And Shanti from Euro-Asia Pacific sat me in a corner and for 10 minutes spoke to me about shadow report writing. And she said, do you know about shadow report? I had not 
a clue of what she was talking about. She asked me if I knew about Fido and I had no clue. And then she said, it's important that South Africa does a shadow report, you know. So, of course, I was all young and enthusiastic and rushed home and asked people if they knew about it and no one was working on a shadow report. So I said, come on, let's do it. We had no clue what we were doing. We got... (laughs) <laughs> 35,000 rand at the time, which is about $3,000 from the Canadian Gender Fund. And we just got that money and said, okay, we're going to do a shadow report. So when we sat around the table for the first time and I just pulled together women that I knew were working on various aspects of violence against women, none of us were experts that time because it was just South Africa emerging from apartheid. But we had personal experiences of violence. We knew people who had experienced it. So we got that around the table we looked at one another and what the hell are we doing here? We didn't even know where to start. I had done a course then in project management or something and we used the PIST you know, that political, economic, social, and technological framework that people use when they do work those days. I mean, it's evolved now. And I just said, let's do a pest on violence against women, you know. And so we started to talk about what the political was, what were the issues, and so forth. Even the women around the table at that point were grassroots organizers. So we were in contact with Shanti and Shanti gave us some guidance as to what we could do. So we did a thematic report, was the first thematic report to CEO. We didn't know about critiquing or analyzing women's experiences within the articles of the CEO framework. We just knew violence. That was it. And what we decided was to look at the various aspects of women's lives. So looking at the articles of CEDAW, but from through a violence lens. So we looked at education through a violence lens. We looked at poverty through a violence lens. And we looked at health through a violence lens. And that was a huge learning experience for us. And I mean, I think that report was used by people like Liz Kelly, used that shadow report to do a similar analysis of women's lives in the UK. The woman that is International Women's Rights Minnesota, she also used that as a teaching tool eventually. So we came up with that report. And what we did was each woman around the table had to go back to her constituency and find out from them, you know, what was their views and their analysis of what was going on in their life. We didn't even use the word analysis at the time. You know, it was just, we spoke about women's lived realities. And so we used those lived realities to shape that report uh, with a lot of guidance from Shanti. We eventually managed to get it to South Africa. But by the time she came, we had the the draft of the report done already. And to her credit, she didn't critique the report in the way of saying, oh, you didn't do it correctly, you should do it like this. None of that stuff. She just let it go and then taught us how to do international advocacy. She gave us such a thorough grounding in what we would do because she could not come with us to the UN. She had just completed a local to global program. So we came here on our own, but we were on the phone to Malaysia, given the 12-hour time difference, every single day, trying to make sense of what was going on here. Four of us were selected by the group. We came. Fortunately, we didn't know anything about international advocacy. So we just came for the whole period of the two weeks that the, the session was on. And for the first week, we were not up for review. So we sat in sessions. We listened to what was going on. We came to
to understand how the thoughts were presented, how the questioning was done, and we started to formulate our own ideas around how we were going to use our report and the time that we were there to influence the CEDAW committee. Shanti had told us about each person, which is always important because we knew who was interested in labor relations, who would be interested in health, and we organized ourselves to be able to, to engage in that advocacy. But for me, what was important about it was to bring that information home and to work with the women on the ground to understand the convention, what it provided for them and how they could access it. I took the decision when we came back to use the CEDO convention to frame all of our work. So we framed everything we did on the three principles of substantive equality, non-discrimination and state accountability. And to a large extent, we still use that because it works to be able both to get women to understand what it is in their lives that constitutes discrimination, what would equality look like, they have to look at that themselves, and then what is the state's role in all of that. So it really was very powerful. And I think that that's what made us successful, is being able to take that international instrument and bring it down to women in the village and say, this is how you use it. And to this day, it's an important part of our work. That's what helps us to keep locally rooted in the So we go back to people all the time. You know, what's interesting for me is that this whole concept of intersectionality has been the buzzword over the last few years. I was asked once, what do they mean by this, you know? But she had been with me from the beginning and she said to me, but you've been using an intersectional approach from day one, you know, looking at women, you know, looking at the poverty issue and how it intersects with the access to education and the access to healthcare and all that. I'm like, oh, okay, so actually we've always done this. It's nothing new, although we did have Kimberly Crenshaw come and train our staff in 98 with the World Conference on Racism. She came and then we invited her to come and provide us with training. So that was an important part of the work. It remains an important part of the work. I think my struggle now is that I have grown because of the international exposure a lot. And we've also, one of the things we did in the organization was to give women in the organization as much exposure to the international as what we could. That's been so, so powerful. You know, right at the beginning, I took the woman who was the port person, the cleaner, the tea maker, and all that. I took her to the family violence conference in Cyprus and something magical happened at that conference in a way she just suddenly saw that she could be more than the office cleaner and tea maker. She went to a one-day workshop on how to run services for women. And she said after that one day, she said, I want to do this. And today she is the manager of one of the areas we work in in one of the offices. And she's so clear and articulate because she had that exposure. So even now I'm here and I have a group of three young women, supposed to have been five, but two of them were denied visas, who've come to learn and they were jumping with excitement yesterday at all they learned for the day. I think the important thing is to recognize that for me, it was always about how can I facilitate access to other women to the kinds of opportunities I have. And in doing that, the work grows in ways you can't imagine. So I'm not the repository of the knowledge, the analysis, but the women that I have brought with me. 
along that journey in different ways. They have different understandings, experiences, etc. But the important thing is that they've had that exposure. They've had that ability to see the world through a much larger lens. And for me, that's the important part of it. I also learned very early on that taking women out of the actual environment and exposing them, whether it be taking them from a village and bringing them into the city, or I used to do crazy things when I was much younger and when money was all freely available, which is not anymore, is just take 40 women on a plane to Cape Town and say, let's go up the mountain, let's take a boat trip. All things that were way, way outside the realm of understanding. And it just did amazing things. It showed women that there was just so much more to aspire to, so much more that they could do for themselves. So those things are important. People sometimes ignore that or don't pay enough attention to it. But for me, those are the important things to do in my activism. Community-based and local leadership has, particularly amongst women who are doing women's rights work, for eons, like Shanti's, like yours, uh, like Peggy's, have been deeply rooted in sort of organic accountability between and amongst the women who are working together to advance women's rights in a whole host of areas. And as I speak to older women and grandmothers, that's something I hear about quite often. How has the work at the center changed over the years and how has your role in relationship to it changed? The thing is that, first of all, we started out as a Masimanyane Women's Support Center. We started what's now called the first generation of women's organizations. We were providing services to women. At that point in time, coming from being in South Africa and coming from an apartheid system, the first thing we had to deal with was the lack of professional skills to provide the kind of services that we wanted to provide. So I was fortunate in being able to think very much outside the box. I had the view, and I got this from my mother. My mother was a nurse, and she was a community health nurse. So she went out and worked in the community. You know, she wasn't in our, based in our hospital. After she did all of that, she went into community health nursing. And then I began to understand, I think from just observing her, that she was very engaged in the community and looking at health and health promotion from a much broader perspective. So I came to understand that even though communities like ours didn't have social workers and psychologists and, you know, all that kind of professional skills, we had a way. There's indigenous knowledge on how to address all of their problems, no matter what it is, in a way that works for them. So I took that understanding and said, well, Women have always had to deal with trauma, they've had to deal with violence and all kinds of things, and they have found ways through it, not around it, but through it. To this day, I believe very strongly in that. One thing I don't do is go into a community and tell them what to do. Go into a community and ask people, what are you doing in addressing, you know, this kind of whatever, you know, challenge they have. And so we did partner with an organization at that time, it was called Lifeline, who did a counseling course. I actually, when I was very young, I've never told my mother this, I used to run away to secretly go and do this counseling course. I asked those people to come and do training for us in counseling. And that was a big thing because they were a white organization and white organizations never interacted with black women at the time other than being domestic workers and so forth. And it was a cultural shock for both sides. The black women had never encountered white women in the way 
that they were encountering them as sort of teachers and coaches and so forth at that time. So that's when we started and, and we took women off the streets, <laughs> you know, really. Women were four years of formal schooling. It was a big leap forward now that I think about it. And I've not dwelt on it before for those women who had a very, very, you know, little kind of formal schooling, support, very low confidence levels and all that. And we put them through this course. I still have three of those women in the organization today, you know, who started out in that way. But the women came because they heard there was something happening for women. They didn't have a formal knowledge of what it was. It was like, this is for women. So they came and they said, we want to be part of this thing. So we put them through the training. And of course, the great thing about it was, it was the start of democracy in South Africa. So everything was new and everybody was learning. No one had governed before. No one knew anything. So we kind of caught that wave as it was rising. And then the laws were beginning to change. So we, in the idea was originally to start a support group for survivors of violence. And the reasoning behind that was that I was a survivor of violence myself. And I went to look. I was married. I was in an abusive relationship. I went to look for help. And there was no help for me. My ex-husband at the time went to an organization called FAMSA, and then they called me in to mediate what they were trying to do at the time, and then proceeded to tell me how wrong I was in the marriage. And I was incensed by that. I thought, how can these people tell me this? You know, they'd listen to him. And, and there was just something, I didn't know anything about violence, but there was something inherently wrong in it. And then I found somebody, I found a psychologist, a white guy who had been working with the street children and he was very good with the street children. And somebody said, speak to him. In that experience, I thought, what if all women who were survivors had this? would be amazing. And in my initial consultations, when I went around asking people, I spoke to doctors, I spoke to school principals, everybody was saying, you should focus on children. And I was like, there are organizations for children, but there's nothing for women, you know? So then, then I got into that. So initially we started very, very bumpy, not knowing. We came up against a lot of criticism from the psychologists at the universities who said, you can't do this. This is not right. They're not professional. They shouldn't be engaging with people and all that. And I had to fight through that. It was a very difficult fight for me because it was something that I had to resolve within myself. And it kept on bringing up feelings of inadequacy, feelings of I'm doing the wrong thing, and then fighting it. And the women know what they want. The women know what they need. You know, so there was that constant struggle. But anyway, we fought through it and we, we started to help women. And in the beginning, when I remember the very first case that came to me was a three-year-old child who'd been raped. Her mother brought her, you know, and this is, you know, I've been everywhere and I can't, I don't know what to do with this child. So what we did, right. we just started to write down these cases and then referred it to the minister. I didn't even like go to the police or I just sent it to the minister of justice. <laughs> in case I, I still do that. <laughs> I don't go through the hierarchy. If I have mm -hmm. a problem, I write to the president or I write to the minister. I right. don't go, you know, and, and I found that very effective. People say, oh, you must follow the protocol. I'm like, bullshit, I'm just writing to, I think, needs to address this issue now. 
And immediately the Minister of Justice, who was also trying to put a department together, wrote back and said, listen, I'm sending you somebody to train you on how to document the cases and all that. So we, we got that. Just by the way, you know, one of the big guys, now Vusi Pakoli, who's really well known in the country, he came at the time because he was also still starting out in the stuff. So we learned advocacy by accident, not by any kind of formal training. This happened. And so we started to do that kind of work. And then we realized that we needed to get engaged in the process of developing the legislation that was going to support women. And because I wrote to the Minister of Justice, he did two things. He funded me to go to the conference in Brighton on violence against women. That was also a seminal moment for me. But I don't think there's been another conference like that, you know, that focused Uh in highly on violence. And I learned so much from that because there were people there talking about rape in a way I had no idea about domestic violence. All these things were at that conference, you know, came out. So he did that and he sent this person to train us. But then what we did was we did a petition to the minister to say that he needed to change the laws and he needed to provide greater protection to women. And we went door to door getting signatures for this petition. And just asking, I mean, I would be on planes. I mean, I was on a plane one day and I met Desmond Tutu and I said, please sign our petition. This is what we say. He signed it and we did. So we got these. I mean, it was only like 4,500 signatures at the time, but we compiled it into a massive dossier. And then he came, we invited him to come and we handed it over to him and said, you know, that this is very rudimentary stuff, you know, nothing fancy. He then appointed me to the committee that was working on legislation on domestic violence. So that then became how we framed the Domestic Violence Act. We also had gone to New York. We did the shadow report. We knew CEDAW. We used CEDAW, the preamble, to the convention. We used that as the preamble to the legislation. It's still there. We started to make these links from the local to the national to the global and back. So that was very important, getting the work rooted at community level. And because we were the only facility in the province working for women, with women, by women, was absolutely essential in shaping our identity. I think the exposure I got by going to many of the international conversations helped us to evolve the work in different ways. That's been important because the conversation Masimanyani has in the country is different to conversations that other groups have. So in South Africa, most of the women's groups work within the parameters of the constitution, which is absolutely critical, and they work within the legal frameworks of the country, but they're not necessarily looking at international norms and standards. Most are not. Even if you look at the total shutdown campaign, which is now the biggest campaign, which I fully support because the young women have really been able to push the envelope. But if you look at the 24 demands, it's not international norms and standards. It's very much within that. It's very parochial, you know, kind of this is what South Africa is doing and working with that. The difference with us is that we have the concepts and the language and the understanding of how international instruments and international law It's helped us to have a different conversation. It's helped us to understand state accountability in a different way. That has helped us 
to shape my Simanyani. So we the service provision thing. Then we did the service provision with community organizing and advocacy. And now this time we are now focusing on system strengthening, mainly on research on advocacy and movement building. So we've been through different growth points that have taken us to different places and spaces. And of course, now we have a regional program. So we've set up programs in Mozambique, Uganda, and Ghana for now. It's the first phase of this regional work. Wow. So we take in that work, everything we know into those spaces. And it's been from that program for me is so close to my heart because it's really working very well. We're working with young women, but we have experienced women holding that process, which is really exciting. And we are looking at building the capacity, facilitating the capacity for women to come into these international spaces and to be able to bridge that local to global space to bring change both at the national level and at the local level for themselves. So that's exciting for me. But also I've now established the international network to end violence against women in a walk we call it. We've got the resources to grow that network. So we're in the process of doing regional consultations. So my struggle has been how to communicate and translate what I know and learn at the global level to larger groups of women at the national level. I'm still struggling with that. I found some kind of a methodology and that methodology was to establish, you know, national coalitions and then to be able to feed into that, not doing that very well because of the time constraints. So what I have done is, what I am doing is trying to build teams of women that I can work with and then they take that to the other levels. That's the only way that I think it's possible. I'm going to look at other models because I've heard that the successful models like in Bangladesh and India, women have done this better. I established something called the Women's Equelo Network, WIN for short, and I work with the WIN Network. You know, I try to work with them to understand and to, and it's for some of them, I mean, they just have absorbed it like a sponge, you know, what I'm training them to do, and then they take that into their communities and they, they work with other women. So this kind of rollout effect, you know, that we use. The international network stuff is different because while the regional stuff is I work beautifully with the women in the region, all those leaders are very experienced people. So we can facilitate the growth of the work we do as a collective. They also have power. They have resources. We brought resources to the table. So that's working really well. I mean, resources are everything. If you've got the resources, you can make a lot of things work. You've been such an activator. You've been such a facilitator of building coalitions, building an organization, building movements. How do you experience your own role now? Just in your own sense of yourself, your own reflection, has that changed as you get older in the work? When I look at when I started out, I was very fearful and very terrified of being out there and doing work. But I always had an inner knowing. I tell people the story. I was working in business and I was working for Kimberly Clark Carlton Paper in Cape Town and then I had an opportunity to come back. My dad was ill and my husband at the time had been transferred to East London and I let him go and I didn't go with him. 
And then eventually my dad also took ill and I realized that I needed to go home. So the company offered me a transfer and I had an inner pull that said to me that there was something I didn't, I couldn't articulate what it was, but I said, no, I don't want to do that. I'm going to do something else when I go home. So I came back to East London at that time and I had this very strong, restless feeling that something was not right and that I was called to do something else. And I wasn't sure what that was. I didn't even know that I was called to do something, but it just felt like I needed to do something else. So then I went to church at the time. I don't go to church anymore, but those days I was really involved in it. Somebody preached about the street children and I ended up going and saying, and I just knew at that point that that's where I needed to go. So I went to this person and I said, listen, I'm not trained or anything like that, but I'd like to be involved. And he said to me, what do you do? So I said, I come from a business background. So he said, come and see me. So I went to see him and started doing the community work at that place. And then as the work grew and I was working with the children and the women, there was something else that there were moments when something happened to me that sort of said, you need to be doing something else now. It It wasn't a message. It was just a very strong feeling within myself. And then the short version of the story is I made the decision to to start the Women's Center and I went into that. So at moments in my life, I've known, sometimes it's come as, as an inner knowing and lots of times as it is now, it's a restlessness. It's saying there's something else that needs to happen in your life now. And I struggle with that. There have been points when I said in 2005, I think I said, I'm leaving this organization. I've done my bit. I'm going out of it now. One of my board members at the time said, but this is not the same organization you started. It's a different one. That helped me shift my thinking. That It was my inner thinking that had to change. And I'm actually going through a transition like that now where I'm feeling something needs to change, you know, and I'm struggling with what that is. Over time, in the beginning, I was very much like the young people today. Know it all, can do it all type of thing. I became more grounded, you know, and I would talk, speak in every meeting. I had to say something. My voice had to be out there. I learned to listen more and speak less. But over time, the knowledge that I developed and the work that I did on the ground gave me more confidence. It took away a lot of my fear, probably because of my own experience of violence and apartheid and and all of the things that happened to me. I was very fearful at one point in my life. And a lot of that has gone. I'm much more grounded, much clearer, and I know that I don't need to change everything. I also have come to believe very much so that standing still can be as powerful as moving around a lot. I can stand very still in a space and I will know that it's fine, it's okay. And for me, I think those are the things that are very important. I mean, I've just recently been appointed to the President's Committee on Gender-Based Violence and Femicide in South Africa. And I went to this meeting. In the in the past, I would have wanted to be the kind of smart one in the room type of thing. Now I sit <laughs> back and I listen to what people are saying because that's being smart. You hear what people are saying and you are able then to respond in a much more measured and clear way, you know, and not just kind of try and jump in and 
really, like I said, be the smart one. In a way, I've enjoyed growing older, becoming more clear and being able to be a lot more contained. Because even in that, in that containment, there's a lot of movement and growth and things happening. What I do regret is slowing down. My heart may still be on fire and I still you know, want to do everything, but the reality is that I can't. Right. You know? <laughs> Adjusting to that is quite something, you know. And I mean, there's still a part of me that is I'm walking around and I'm thinking I can still do, you know, X, Y, and Z. But the truth is, you know, that I can't. I mean, once I turned 60, it was like, mm, not anymore. You know? <laughs> right. so I think also what I love about where I'm at is that I've built up so much social and political capital over the years that makes a lot of what I do a lot easier. I can pick up the phone and call people for help, for guidance, for support. I've kept the connections. I appreciate that a lot. And that you can only build over time. I think one of the other things is there's two women in South Africa that are in the organizations for the longest period of time. That's Zubaida, Dango, and myself. And we always talk about ourselves being the grandmothers in the movement, you know, and we sort of say, like, is it time to get out yet? Should we be going, you know, that kind of thing. But for me, staying has had a profound impact on the growth of my organization, the people in it, the issue we deal with, the communities we work with. I mean, that, I think, has been phenomenal. Yeah, and it fits very much with the themes that I've been thinking about, that the grandmothers of our movements, the grandmothers, whether they're biological or not, the elders, the grandmothers in our midst have an extraordinarily important role to play. We need those elder stateswomen to help things move forward. What effect did that have on you having grandchildren of your own? Well, first of all, my grandchildren are just such a joy. And I think the one thing that it has done for me is, one, it makes me realize that the work I do is so important because I'm creating a different world for them. I'm contributing to the creation of a different world for them. I think that on a political level is an important thing. But my grandchildren signify fun, joy, love, laughter, relaxation, all sorts of things that are kind of necessary in life. One of the things I struggle with is that the work I do makes me very, very serious because I work on violence against women. I'm confronting this on a daily basis. It's incredibly challenging to be hearing about women's pain and suffering every single day so that it does suck the joy out of you to some degree and you have to have some way to balance that. Much My grandchildren provide that balance For me, you know, I mean, I just, I love the way their eyes light up when they see me. I love lying on a bed, reading them stories. I love taking them out and doing fun things with them. I mean, they also remind me about how different the world is because they are learning different things. I'm astonished at them telling me, I mean, they're still little and they're saying, Granny, we're going to coding. And I'm like, what on earth is coding? I've never heard of it before. (laughs) 
You know, I still don't know what it is, but I know something to do with computers and the internet and that sort of thing, you know. And then I drive them to junior engineering classes and they make Ferris wheels and things. I'm like so amazing. I plan a day, you know, oh, I'm taking the kids out and I'm, we're going to do this, that or the other. And we get to a place, you know, wherever I'm going to take them. What would have been fun for me as a child is not fun for them anymore because the whole world has changed. So that's a reminder that, listen, you know, we're not taking we're not <laughs> You know, it's, it's a different world. It's brilliant having the grandchildren and watching them grow and all that. So that's an important part of it for me. How old are your grandchildren? They're eight and ten now. So they're it's, still pretty young. Do they have a sense of what a powerhouse their grandmother is? Yeah, I don't think so. You know, I talk to them a little bit about my work and sometimes they're excited. So the other day I was on the radio and they were like, oh, Granny, we heard you on the radio. It was just by accident. They were driving somewhere and the radio was on and they heard it. And that made, gave them a lot of excitement. But I don't think they really understand. I do talk about the work that I do, you know, in some small ways. And then, of course, they get to cut to events. So when I have delegations of women in Cape Town, often my son and his wife will host them for dinner at home and then the boys I say to them, these are all my friends. And then I say, Granny, you've got such a lot of friends, you know, (laughs) (laughs) something like that. That's a bit strange to them. But yeah, I think they understand injustice. That I know because we talk a lot about it. And so so the other day, I mean, I had these conversations with them. The younger one was telling me that one of the girls in the class was being picked on. I had the conversations with him about, well, what do you do about that? Are you able to go and make her feel better about herself? And then we have conversations about how they can behave differently. And of course, I ask them, well, what do you think about it? And do you think she likes it? And, you know, is she hurt? How would you feel? You know, that sort of thing. So I think it's also important that we're able to have those kind of conversations with them. You know, they teach me as well about how they are learning and what they are learning. And I hear that often from grandmothers that they are constantly engaged in a conversation with their adult children and their grandchildren about all of the ways in which they're engaged in social change and how that affects the family, how that gets internalized. I think it's also interesting when I observe through my daughter-in-law and, you know, myself that we're very strong women. And the kids, of course, they're boys, they're learning that, you know, that the, the they're learning that strong people in their lives are the women. The grandmother, the other grandmother is just as strong, you know, so they learn that from early on and they understand that women are not just pushed into a corner and left to die, you know, that doesn't happen in our family at all. I think there's just so much that grandchildren teach you, you know, but for me, I think my time with my grandchildren is always time when I want to relax with them. It's not always possible because sometimes I'm working while I'm with them, but they also help me not to work while I'm with them. And that I think is important because I'm on my phone, I'm doing all the time, I'm answering emails, all that. But when I'm with them and I want to put it aside and just be with them because I don't have that much time. You know, it's been a wonderful journey of watching them grow and develop, very much aware of the fact that soon they're going to be teenagers. It will be different then. It's been just amazing having grandchildren, like being able to really just go through the world having grandchildren. I think it's also been insightful for me, you know, when you talk, when I talk about these things and I have 
insight into the work that I do, but also where I'm at. And I think this has actually been really important for me to do this reflection because now some things have come up talking about the transitions and how I've weathered those and so forth and, and how I feel I'm going. I mean, we go through transitions all the time in our lives and I feel that I'm going through a transition now. And I had some insight in the conversation. So thank you to you, Ilana, for that. Oh, <laughs> thank you so much, Leslie, for taking the time today. Thanks okay. so much. Eh? Thanks. Bye, Leslie. Ilana. Take good care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. I'm Ilana Lansberg-Lewis, your host of Grandmothers on the Move. If you want to find out more about me or the podcast, go to grandmothersonthemove.com and come back next week for another episode.